Hello, and welcome to Expected Value, the podcast that goes inside the sports analytics world. I'm Paul Carr from True Media. Among the things we like to do on the show, we like to trace someone's academic and career paths and find out exactly what they do in their analytics-related job in the sports world. So we'll do those things on this episode, number 64 of the show, the Randall McDaniel episode, if you will, in honor of the Hall of Fame offensive lineman's jersey number. And our guest this week is from the football world. It's John Teramina, who spent seven years with the Atlanta Falcons, rising to be their director of football data and analytics, before recently joining us here at True Media as our director of football strategy. John and I will talk about how he majored in broadcast journalism before getting a master's in analytics, his advice for students or anybody looking to enter the field, what he looked for when hiring at the Falcons, how he got a job with the Falcons in the first place, and what he did in various roles there. He'll tell us how the use of data changed during the seven years in Atlanta, how the department evolved, what a typical NFL analytics department looks like now, and he'll walk us through a typical year. What would he do during the season, free agency, draft, offseason? What was it like going to a Super Bowl with the Falcons? And what he's working on now here at True Media. Then producer Sergio De La Esprilla will join me to react and wrap things up. Without further ado, here is the expected value conversation with the former Falcons director of analytics, True Media's own John Teramina. We're joined now on expected value by John Teramina, True Media's director of football strategy, former director of football data and analytics with the Atlanta Falcons, spent about seven years with the Falcons. We'll obviously dive into a lot of that. John, welcome to the show. Let's start with your kind of academic path before you got into your career. You majored in broadcast journalism at Penn State. So what was kind of the original plan and what were you thinking professionally at that point? Hi, Paul. Yeah, thanks for having me. So I've always wanted to work in sports. I Specifically, I loved football growing up. When I was five, I said I wanted to be the Eagles GM. But obviously, you know, as a five-year-old, you have your own plans. Um, didn't play football growing up. I played soccer. That was kind of my sport that I chose to play. I would have loved to play football. My mother, unfortunately, didn't let me play, but <laughs> loved playing soccer regardless. Um, I also liked math. I was actually originally a math major at Penn State, so I spent two years as a math major. Um, I didn't really know how I'd piece sports math together. This was back in 2009 that I was picking my major. Sports analytics was definitely not really a thing. If it was a thing, it wasn't anywhere close to what it was today. Um, I was kind of bored with math midway through my undergrad career. I knew I was going to be going to grad school. Um, talked to my advisor. Uh, she had told me, like, you could be an actuary. You could go into teaching. I'm like, yeah, none of those sound great with math. And, like, I ultimately knew this isn't going to be the, the end. And I liked journalism. I did some video production stuff in high school. Um, thought, okay, if I don't necessarily pursue anything with my grad degree, I could maybe work for ESPN or something like that with a journalism degree and kind of meet those needs of still working in sports. Ultimately, that's what I wanted to do. Um, and then I kind of figured it out when I got to grad school at that point. So you got a master's in analytics from Villanova. What, how did you get from that you know, journalism degree to analytics? What led you to do that master's study? So grad school was in the cards. My grandfather basically told me when I was young, like, you know, undergrad was what differentiated uh, when your dad was growing up, but like grad school is kind of going to be really important. So I knew like I was going to look for like MBA programs, generally speaking, like that's kind of was like the, the catchy thing to look for. 
Um, and so ironically enough, I was, I found the program through a targeted Google ad. I was looking for masters in business analytics programs that had business administration programs that had a concentration in analytics. And because my dad was a Villanova grad, Google knew that, Hey, here's this masters of science and analytics program. You might be interested in this. And so ultimately I checked it out and it was a perfect match. And I've also felt at that point I had known about Moneyball. I'd seen it growing in baseball and I figured I could see this being a path into football analytics if I can actually learn the analytics piece of things. So the program, I understand, wasn't sports specific. Did you incorporate sports into different projects, things like that, that you would do during the course of study there? Yeah, so we had one of our like courses was a sports analytics course. It was led by our professor, Brett Myers, who currently works with an MLS team. He's worked with several MLS teams. Um, so he would bring in some people from the industry and taught us some just like basic coding things of like, here's how you bring in data from different data sources. You're going to have messy things to work with. You're not going to have the clean data that they were providing us with for our non like kind of real life projects. Um, so that was good to kind of get that experience, but it was more surface level just to kind of get an exposure to sports. The program in general was uh, a kind of catch-all analytics program. Gotcha. Do you have any thoughts on, you know, I mean, you've, I'm sure you've been asked like I have students, should I like study sports analytics, which, you know, you can major in that some, a few places now, or should I just study a generic analytics? Any thought on kind of the balance or opportunity between those two? I mean, definitely if there is a sports analytics program that you identify that has at least some foundational coding experience that you'll learn in there. That's, I'd say, the route to go these days. I've met people from those programs. It sounds like they get a good exposure to both the technical side of things and the sports side of things. Um, you don't definitely don't need to do that, um, but those things didn't even exist five years ago. So some typical things like engineering, computer science, statistics, they still kind of set the table in similar ways, just not necessarily with that sport specific focus that you're going to get. And like, really, I'd say the biggest thing is it doesn't necessarily matter what you study in school, as long as it's under that umbrella where you're going to have some skills that are going to qualify you. The bigger thing is a lot of schools now have sports analytics clubs that have popped up where those are the like roles that you're actually going to get integrated where you're working with the football team or the baseball team or doing competitions that get you hands-on experience that set the table for you far better than whatever you're going to learn in your four years there as well. I got you. Yeah. So the specific major matters, but not as much as kind of the work you do, whether it's academically or, or extracurricularly while you're there, right? Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, we'll talk about it probably, but it's hard to get that first job in the industry yeah. without having sports specific experience or really experience that makes you stand out in general. Um, and those are ways that you can stand out is having that, hey, I graduated with this degree that qualifies me technically. And here's my hands-on experience that kind of cuts through maybe the first year that an intern would experience otherwise. Uh, let me follow on that. You've done hiring with the Falcons, been involved in it some here at True Media. What else are you looking for when you're hiring somebody in the analytics space, whether it's skills, uh, soft skills, whatever it might be? So it's going to sound like kind of maybe rudimentary or basic, but like the biggest thing I would always look for is like, can we trust you? Number one, like accountability is the biggest thing. There's no real margin for error in season in terms of deadlines that, I mean, sometimes it's to the minute or to the hour that if you don't deliver it, it's useless an hour later. And just like, you have to be very like disciplined um, in your role. And so when you're hiring someone that's maybe in an entry level role, they've maybe ha never been held to those standards before and you can't replace a role in season. So that's definitely the foundation is trying to figure out ways that 
like, will you be a trustworthy member of this team? And that kind of leads to, will you be a team player as well? That, I mean, ultimately I liked people who have a very specific focus on here's the ways that I feel that kind of my unique background will add value to the team, but also being open to there's going to be some not so fun parts of the job. Um, football knowledge definitely is nice to have, but it can be taught. Um, as I mentioned, I didn't play and I joined thinking I knew football. I knew football as a fan, as you will. Um, but then you get in there and you learn pretty quickly. Eh, I know the <laughs> basics of football, but some of these basics really don't necessarily apply in impacting the game. But as long as you're willing to put in the time, I spent hours just late at night sitting with whether it's our scouting assistants or our QC coaches watching film and just asking questions like, hey, this might be a dumb question, but can you explain cover three to me, for example? And what are the nuances between the different types of cover three? And just soak it up. If you're willing to put in the time, there's a lot of people in the industry that are willing to teach and, and anyone can really get there. Yep. So let's let's get into the career path and some of the stuff you did with the Falcons. So you got the master's in analytics at Villanova. Then you joined the Falcons initially as a football analyst. How did that job come about for you? This is around 2015. Yep, yep. So Teamwork Online, I'm, I would advertise anyone who's not on Teamwork Online that would like to work in the sports industry, get on there. Because that's honestly, I was looking on like Indeed and general job searches and you just don't find things. And then once you get an account on Teamwork, you're surprised. There's a lot of postings in relevant sports roles um, that fit a, a myriad of uh, possibilities, whether it is analytics, you could do marketing. I mean, they're all on there. So I was looking for, I had a bunch of searches set up. I signed up. There's like a, I don't know exactly what it costs now, but it was like 50 bucks back in the day for the year. Or if you applied for a job, you'd become like a priority posting. So I just invested in myself. I'm like, I'm going to go all in on doing that while I was actually, while I was in grad school, uh, my Villanova program was online. So I was looking for these jobs like one year into the grad program. Um, and so I was looking just for anything around the country. Uh, I ultimately first applied for a job with the Sixers just because they were kind of like the hometown team. Um, got an interview with them, uh, did not get the job. Applied for a job with the Hornets, had two interviews. And then third uh, job I applied for was the Falcons. And that one ironically was posted one week into my like real career. So while I was in grad school, I got a job as a database administrator for a health insurance company. And so I was in that job for five days when the Falcons job was posted. <laughs> and I was like, you know what? I'm going to apply anyway. Like, I, I know I'm happy kind of doing what I was doing, but I'm not going to like pass up any of these opportunities. And ironically enough, the master's that I was getting was like nice to have in my interview process. But that like it ended up being six weeks of SQL experience that I had in my DBA job is what made me stand out to the hiring manager, Carl Pierberg, who hired me because he was saying, you're going to start doing analytics from whatever you kind of deem is cool there. But here's these other things that we already are doing that are SQL based. And the fact that you can come in day one and impact in those areas. Hmm. I was just lucky. I mean, I yeah. didn't know anybody there. Um, a lot of people asked that and it was just good timing. I was truly lucky, right place, right time and got my foot in the door with the Falcons. So 2015, what did the Falcons analytics department or did it look like, or maybe more generally, what did NFL team departments, if there were departments, what did those look like? I and mean, this is only eight years ago, but it's kind of an eternity in uh, the data world. What did stuff look like then? It's funny because, so I was our first intern. So we had like a department of like 0.5, if you will. And it was at that point, maybe, I don't know, a quarter to a half of the league had some representation. And then about a half of the league had almost nobody or people that were in roles that 
weren't titled where you could explicitly tell from their team website that they were in those roles. And really the only reason I know that is because of, it was a very growing thing. Our bosses would always ask us like, Hey, can you document around the league? What are the staffs look like? And you'd scour the web and I mean, you'd have maybe the Ravens back in the day who had a handful, like three to five, and you're like, okay, that's like pretty impressive. The Browns as well. Um, the Eagles have always had several, but then you'd like go to some team sites and find nobody and like try to find a title that you could fit into the role to say that that team had somebody. Um, so yeah, they were just kind of getting started. So you started as a football analyst there. What are you, what are you doing, generally speaking, when you join and you're that half member of the department basically to start things off yeah so kind of anything and everything and a lot of just learning because at the end of the day like i i was tasked with like hey here's some data figure stuff out but ultimately nobody was really asking questions so i was asking a lot of questions i kind of worked with our coaches in scouting to ask hey how can we directly impact your processes and then went to the drawing board um, figured out what can we do um, there was a decent data set that we had in place, but nothing that like already was, here's an analytics process for the coaches. Here's an analytics process for the scouts. Um, we had a game week advance, um, but that was just basic box score stuff, nothing crazy. Um, so I was blessed, honestly, to work with like a great GM, great head coach that were willing to pull back the veil that I've talked to several of my peers where the buildings necessarily don't share the way they did with kind of the nerds of the building, if you will. Um, and Thomas Dimitrov as the GM and Dan Quinn as the head coach. Shout out to both of them. Um, I was definitely blessed to work with some of the best in, in the industry. Um, they kind of showed me from the coaching side of things, AJT, if you're going to look at data from a coach's perspective, here's the way we would use it. Here's how we're already kind of using it. Here's the questions that maybe if you could help us out, that would add value. And quite frankly, here's the things that don't waste your time on. Like. <laughs> At the end of the day, like we're going to tell you, like we're not going to just say, oh, yeah, that's nice. So that was great. Um, and then our GM was honestly, he helped get us started with the head co with the coaching staff because he wanted to kind of do like a 360 review of the organization of like, all right, how, how can we add value from the coaching staff? And so that was where we started because that's when I was hired. Um, and then in the off season, we worked with him on building a draft model, like a POC of it, it, it in my first year. And then we kind of built that out a little bit more in my second year as an intern. Um, and so, yeah, just setting the groundwork for introducing them to, Hey, like if you use a decision tree, you can use those same factors that you're looking at when you're evaluating prospects and the math's kind of going to do that for you to tell you, these are the players that historically project to do well based on those same factors that you're evaluating. And then you show them the examples of some historical things and they're like, Oh my gosh, like, that's pretty much what we're doing in our processes, but you've refined that to eliminate some of the error. So I was our guinea pig for those first two years. And then in year three of being an analyst, I went full time and was able to get us another intern. So. so you moved up coordinator, manager, eventually director of football analytics there. How did the department grow kind of from a, a personnel standpoint? We'll get into the weeds of what you did in a minute, but just from kind of a personnel and general usage standpoint, how did that change over your years there? So like I said, I was an intern for two years, and then we tried to convert me to full-time both two years, but from a budget perspective, it's just always a challenge of you have to show that you're truly impacting value before you kind of invest even more value or uh, dollars in that area. Um, so first two years was a little bit of a struggle, but we gained some momentum. And then going full-time, it was something where 
that had opened up that intern role to backfill. And that was something that was important to both myself and my boss. So we kind of iterated year over year where I went full time and we got an intern. Then the following year, we got another intern. Then we had some actual restructuring and uh, the second intern was lucky. He was only an intern for six weeks. And so then our other intern was an intern for a little over a year. They both went full time. And so it was a department of three of us as full-time analysts. And then I was also kind of serving as our backend data engineer where I built out kind of the infrastructure that they would use to do their models and analysis and things like that. Um, and eventually it grew to the point where that data engineering role became a part of the department as well. So now as it stands today, it would be a department head with a data engineer and two analysts. And that, is that pretty typical, you think, across the league? What it Team, obviously, it's going to vary team to team, but on the whole, you're looking at that four or five-ish people doing a, a few different things in that department. It all depends on like how you include like the structure because there's football systems, which is very adjacent to football analytics. It existed. I mean, my boss who hired me, Carl, was director of football systems when he hired me. That uh, analytics was almost born out of football systems. So football systems, for people that don't know what that would be, is just like software development mainly. And some of that is also back-end development. Um, so on some teams, that data engineer may fall under the football systems umbrella, and they may also have a handful of developers, whether it's one, two, or three. Um, so if you include both those departments as a whole, it could be anywhere close to five to 10 um, at the high end of those departments. And then most teams have at least one in, every, in each role. And I'd say like the two the combined departments are probably three to four across the league where You'll have somebody who's building some sort of scouting application and somebody who's doing some sort of analytics and then usually a helper for at least one or the other. So, okay. So I want to get into a little more of the weeds of kind of what you're doing in that role with the teams. I want to just trace a calendar year essentially. And because obviously there's different seasons when games and not games draft free agency, we'll get into some of that. So let's just start where we are now. It's early June. Uh, your past rookie camp, mini camp, training camp doesn't start until later in July. I know a lot of teams kind of shut down in some ways, but what, as an analytics department, what are you doing right now after the draft, before the season, you're in this kind of dead area of the summer? I mean, you truly are just kind of catching your breath. Like at the end <laughs> of the day, you don't want to just be complacent, but ultimately as you go through it cycle after cycle, you know, if you don't take advantage of that reset, you won't have like full batteries for the season, so to speak. So yeah, I mean, they're catching their breath. I'd, I'd say most clubs take, so post draft, you have to sign your rookies. So it won't be a, an immediate like, Oh, head for the Hills for a few days, but maybe a week after the draft, you get a couple days off, but then between now and when you'll break for kind of summer, you have the rookies in and you have mini camps. Um, so from that perspective, the coaches are pretty busy when the players are in the building. So uh, between those times of the draft when the players are not in the building, that's the time to get with the coaches to figure out, all right, what do you want? Like next season when it's week one, what does that process look like? Here's what it looked like last year. We've probably already handled some of that in like February and March, but it's kind of touching base on those things again. Um, and ultimately kind of getting our marching assignments for here's what we need to produce for them in the next three months. Um, do a little bit of draft uh, review of here's kind of what the analytics would say about our draft class and how that fell in the rest of the league. Um, just to make sure like it was more a way to show like, all right, in some ways the analytics are integrated into our process, but at the end of the day, the decision makers are going to make the best decision that they feel they should make. And so just in, th in theory, what would the analytics say about them? And just uh, they found that pretty interesting. 
And then ultimately, the biggest thing teams are probably doing right now is now that their roster's set, uh, strategic planning for next free agency. So like, what are the extensions that we want to start doing in the during the season or maybe get done over the summer? Um, what does that look like from when the season's over? Do we need to be making trades in season to fill certain needs and just setting that next 12-month calendar strategic planning? So then training camp starts you know, late July, and you've got about six weeks or so between that and the start of the season. Once everyone's back, coaches are back, players back, everyone's kind of getting going. What does that, what does this process look like for you guys as things get ramped up before the season? Um, so you don't really sleep much. Um, <laughs> sleep it's, optional. Okay. Yeah. Sleep is definitely optional. Um, lots and lots of caffeine. Coffee is a must in every NFL building. Uh, but no, all kidding aside, I mean, you get back, it's great to see football. I mean, you hadn't seen football for eight months almost and all right, now players are back. And so you dive into really a lot of the things that you were hoping to get done in May with the coaches that maybe they didn't get you the requirements and that now they know, oh, the season starts in six weeks. I, I need to get these things kind of in order. Um, so I'll be working with them on whatever the last minute things that they want um, done to be ready for week one. Um, ultimately, it'll be we have six weeks, whether it's spending 16 hours a day every single day. And ultimately, there's very few days off in training camp. Doesn't matter. Making sure when week one comes, there's like no stone that we need to be still turning over to like, oh, our process wasn't set that once you get to week one, teams don't like to change really anything about their process if they can. So it can just be a rinse and repeat throughout the season and stay focused. So if you have like a few loose screws in week one, that's not good. So that's that's our job is just, all right, guys, maybe we wanted the requirements in May, but here we are. Let's get it done. So uh, I'm curious, during training camp practices, whatever, is there any is there data that you're dealing with from that? I mean, obviously, we know tracking chips are more common in games and stuff. Is there anything from, not that even the games, just outside of that, that analysts and, and those teams are looking at? Like re- regards to practice data you're talking yeah, about. Yeah. And what do you, what do you do on, on that front before you even get to preseason games and such? So in general for practice, we had actually like a practice app, if you will, for monitoring reps. So obviously companies like catapult will track the actual GPS speeds of players and you can do load management for that, but really like rep management live in practice. Like you can, I mean, you, everybody remembers Julio Jones with the Falcons that he was our darling, that when he was healthy, he was rocking, but it was sometimes hard to keep the man healthy. So load management was very critical for him. So we had an app that they would be able to, all right, here are the 11 players on offense, here's 11 on defense, here's seven on seven, et cetera, go through the different practice periods. And then on those live rep periods where so-and-so only could hit five reps on the day, they would know like instantaneously that someone's telling DQ, like, all right, here you go. Um, so that was more on the football system side. That's why I yeah. say like we're, we're very integrated. Um, but then from an analysis perspective, the more like the sports science team it would be handling that where they'd have tools where we'd either build that for them or they'd have tools that these vendors provide them with companies like us, quite frankly. Um, and just we kind of stay out of the way for a lot of that, like monitoring that. They, I mean, they went to school for sports science and we're just kind of numbers people. So we leave that analysis to them. And then from a preseason standpoint, obviously from a coaching, watching film, there's value you can get out of that. But from a media standpoint, you see the preseason numbers and they're kind of fun, but we don't think they really mean anything. From a team standpoint, 
do you use numbers at all from the preseason? There's obviously so many variables, but is, is, is there any use out of those preseason games for you guys? Uh, I mean, so it's, it's special teams is probably the one area where like, if there's anybody who's going to be productive on special teams, those things like quote unquote stand out to some uh-huh. coaches. Okay. I'd, I'd say it's more, you'd use those stats strictly to find standout guys that didn't make the cut of the 53 of, all right, who are the guys that had the most rushing yards in the preseason just to have a short list really of here are some guys that we'll pay attention to that are available. And then the regular season begins. What's a typical week look like for you? So let's say you play on Sunday and we start on Monday. What does a typical week look like uh, for you with Falcons or, you know, kind of a general analyst with an NFL team? Yeah. So, I mean, all the coaches get in the building early. They're in at four or 5 a.m. And so the majority of like the video department will be there to support them. And video is honestly like an extension of analytics or analytics is an extension of video is probably a better way of putting it where they've always supported the coaches in their reports that they had to run for them on Mondays. And so now a department like football analytics that exists today, same type of thing where you don't necessarily get there at four or five, but you show up six, seven in the morning and run reports for them, whether it's updating your advance that you had prepared on Friday with just whatever happened in the prior game. Um, There's several reports that you'll run against the breakdown for the coaches that once they're done putting their data in in the morning, you'll run some coaching reports in the afternoon. And then typically we and a lot of NFL teams will have like an advance in the evening where they're pro scouts. And in our case, our analytics department would give an advance to the coaching staff to say, here's what you can expect about the upcoming opponent. Um, And so all 32 teams use a pro scout to do their advance. Um, It's becoming more and more common where those advances are either integrated, they're one after another, um, just to kind of give that, here's the numbers guys take on some things too that are going to add value as well. Um, Tuesday, Wednesday, we would actually kind of switch to the following opponent. So we would always try to be prepared 10 days out for an opponent from an analytics perspective so that the coaches worry about the stuff in game week and then we're ready to kind of give that information to them on Friday. Some coaches would like to have some stuff to kind of like study over the weekend, high level about an opponent, not to like break their focus, but to just that's part of their process and it's what worked for them. Um, And then ultimately at the back half of the week, Wednesday through Friday, um, we'd advance our pro scouts on here's some things the analytics department found that they can dig into further by watching the film and applying typical football knowledge. And so you're grinding through that for 17, I guess now 18 weeks, maybe the playoffs. Once the season ends, however it ends, how quickly do you shift gears into off-season mode or does that happen even before the end of the season? How does the, the off-season mode come about? Yeah, you're definitely like you're, it's, it's funny from an analytics department's perspective, you're supporting whatever's going on. So you'll support the coaching staff all the way through the Super Bowl, but free agency prep starts in, let's say December or November. So those meetings and those conversations, you're going to be providing support there as well. Um, so yeah, those conversations are starting kind of week 12-ish, if you will. Um, and it's hard. You want to have, ultimately, you know, if the goal is to win a Super Bowl, you want to have as many resources dedicated to that focus while that's present. But you have to manage the entire organization at the end of the day that um, it's a, a delicate process. But there's a good overlap. Generally speaking, what is the free agency prep like? Like, I mean, obviously, you can pull your basic stats. Your, I'm sure there's salary cap implications that are factored in. How does what are you kind of all what are all the puzzle pieces you're trying to piece together as you do that? So it's funny, it's, it evolved throughout my career where, I mean, 
the biggest fundamental part is contract negotiation is providing the cap and contracts people with, all right, at the end of the day, the agent's going to say he's the best player at the position, regardless of what the stats say. So how do we refute that? Um, so working with providing just evidence where we know more about the player than his own agent do- does, that's fundamental in probably every building. Um, and then I'd say newer is kind of working on how can analytics impact free agency, where it's not necessarily about projecting their stats. You can see on film who's productive, uh, even if they're not stuffing the box score. That's just a, a better, an easier eval than a college eval. But you can provide more like holistic views of, all right, at this position, how do they age? Or if they've done these things and they have these injuries, what, how does that project? And you, you almost do things similar to how you're doing a draft model to project college to bro to like projecting their career rather than any specific right. stat. Huh. Okay. So yeah. So I, uh, I don't know, tight end might age a little bit better because the explosiveness might not be as much of a factor as if you're a corner, they might fall off sooner, things like that. Totally. And then also like the flip of that, where at those two positions, let's say tight end takes a little bit to mature to their peak form. So being patient at those positions and not trying to, um, or the flip of that, like that would be a position maybe you address in free agency, right? If that's ultimately you're going to waste a draft pick developing a guy like that, is that a position that you target in free agency if that were to be the case? Um, So yeah, just adding value in those areas. I feel like most teams... They have some sort of cap specialist or multiple cap specialists now. I assume you're working hand in hand with those people trying to, you know, make all the numbers come out or figure out what you want to out of all the numbers. I guess really what I'm asking is how, how do you work with the cap specialist uh, as part of that process? Totally. So, yeah, we, we had a director of football operations, Nick Polk, who um, I worked closely with as an intern um, and just providing him with reports on our roster um, as far as who are the upcoming free agents, who are the guys that we need to be negotiating with, helping him with those specific negotiations. And then ultimately that's what uh, uh, created the role for our promote me to be a full-time uh, <laughs> analyst and bring on Emily Betis is actually who we brought on as our first intern. Um, she's now at the Vikings and she, uh, Nick loved having a resource where he could just email or call her and say, hey, can I have this report? And she'd just provide it to him. And so just building out whatever he needed, where he knows the numbers that he wants, but he's not going to spend the time, or he would try to spend the time potentially in Excel. But if she could do it better than he could do it, that's where he's like, you're the perfect resource. And he was the one who ultimately got her to become a full-time analyst on our team and a as I mentioned, she's now with the Vikings and was able to help get her into not even an analytics role now where she has integrated into the cap world. So analytics and cap go kind of hand in hand, like peanut butter and jelly, where the data that we can provide is tailor made for those negotiations. Right. Makes sense. Cause the same stats at a cheaper price or better, or yes. not overpaying for the same stats, et cetera. Uh, so the draft is kind of the next big thing in an NFL calendar from a analytics slash data standpoint, how do you prep for the draft? So that's, it's a hard question because in general, when you think about analytics, you think about creating a model to predict something and in football, there's just not a ton of data available in terms of historical data sets that you can model against the outcomes of those players to predict with much confidence of, all right, this model truly is going to tell you the secret sauce to the draft. 
Um, so there's more basic ways that you can impact it, just providing them with basic leaderboard stats, the ability to watch film from stats like you can do in true media is something that quite honestly, like if you, if, if anyone thinks that that's like trivial, the way that NFL teams would do that without a tool like true media, when I started was this scouting assistant was tasked with these 40 players who had this grade or higher and go through all of their team's games. You didn't have player participation and tag up every time they're on the play and then create a section of that. They called it a POA and point of attack is what that stood for and create a section for all of his interceptions, all of his past breakups, all the times that you impact the play and then create a library of those um, for scouts to watch film. Well, that's not necessarily traditional analytics, but like providing tools for them to save them time in their evaluation process was huge. And then ultimately, as I alluded to earlier about a draft model, it is hard to build them, but as data grows over time, your model gets better and you can provide some more bare bones, as I mentioned with decision trees. Uh, This isn't going to predict who is ultimately going to be good and bad, but here are some kind of like red flags or green flags about players that are you comfortable with this attribute of a player? It's not necessarily going to be the be all end all, but are you comfortable making that decision? Um, but as kind of data advances, those draft models, I think, is where the biggest impact is going to be. So most teams have a draft model you know, trying to figure out who's going to be successful at the pro level. Do teams have a draft model in the sense like trying to guess who's taking whom? You know, we saw this year uh, ESPN had, uh, you know, guys fall or rise or the percent chance they're going to be available in certain spots, et cetera. Is that something that NFL teams are working on also? Uh, so, I mean, high level, you'd be like looking at, all right, across the league, uh, what positions do we ultimately feel that are their weaknesses that they'd be most likely to address? So you're going to tag things like that, but it would more be about the specific player. So you're sitting at 22 and you have your eyes on this wide receiver. You, you're not thinking that any specific team's going to take that guy. You just want to know, all right, maybe it's pick nine and, and I'm at 22. Who are the teams between nine and 22 that need a receiver? Okay. Yeah. So more a general sense than maybe a specific type of model that way. Uh, I feel like we see more and more when we see all the war rooms on TV, we see kind of analyst types sitting in those rooms. Would you have a role on draft day or, or if not, what do you think that someone in that position would typically do on draft day? So definitely did not have a role on draft day in terms of decision-making. I want right. to make that clear. Um, I was just there to support in any ways that I could. Obviously, like if they wanted to see a report, I'm like, hey, does this look good? Like I'd provide it, but I was definitely not making the call. Um, my biggest role was trade support. So I sat next to the our cap and contracts guy, Nick Polk, and we had like potential scenarios for what would a team potentially do to move up seven spots, six spots, whatever it is, so that you could go into the day in that scenario I just outlined and you know, all right, we're at 22 and nine's on the clock and we want to try to get up to 12. Well, we would pull up, here are the scenarios that like you could potentially pitch to move up to 12. And so just finding comps for what have teams done historically and then using like whether it's the traditional draft pick points or one a scale that we had built internally to say like, yeah, that's a fair trade or no, that's not a fair trade. Yes, thinking ahead. So when that question pops up, from a coach or front office person, you're ready and not scrambling right there at the time. Yeah. Okay. So now it's after the draft. Uh, 
what's what's next in the next month or two between after the draft? I mean, you kind of touched on this already, but whether it's you know signing UFAs or whatever it might be, what's your kind of last stuff before you hit that June dead period? Yeah, so I mean, just talking about finishing up the draft process because everybody thinks okay, round seven's over and the draft's over. Uh, that night, actually, so the draft ends around, let's say, 6, 7 p.m. on Saturday. And that's when you're doing all your negotiations with your undrafted free agent. So, and well, on the record, you, you don't start negotiating until the draft's over. Of course not. I'll, I'll, I'll leave it to people to ask if that's true or not. Um, but ultimately, yeah, so you would, you would handle that process that you'd want to try to have kind of your, whether it's 10 or 20 guys in agreement, Um by let's say 8 p.m but then myself and our cap people and maybe a few scouting assistants would sit there until like midnight waiting to get those contracts in just because agents are savvy if you don't get the contract back like they may get another 10 grand in signing bonus and leave you the next day and that happens all the time um so that was like a part of finishing up the draft weekend then that sunday you get all the rest of them in of the guys that kind of promised it and then the following week, you want to get those draft picks signed as fast as humanly possible. And there's like a, a scale to it where a lot of the negotiations do themselves, but we would run reports then on like, all right, now that we know our specific pick and our player, here's what like the markets are. And so that would be the next like four days or so, and then turn it over to someone like Emily to negotiate those contracts and get them done. All right. So... One other Falcons-specific question for a few more general ones. Your second season, Atlanta goes to the Super Bowl. What were those couple of weeks like for you, whether it's from literally what you were doing to prepare or just kind of the general experience? I mean, it was uh, it was an awesome experience in general. It's experience that's still a top-five experience of my life. Um, the It was a, a great season. That was week 12 of that year against the Rams was the first time that we ever had an impact on the, at least a notable impact where Coach Quinn said like, hey, we really liked this. And that just so happened kind of leading into the postseason. So they're asking for more and more every week of the postseason. And you feel like as year two, you're like, yeah, I'm making an impact. So from a work standpoint, it was like a dream come true where I felt like I'm involved in this winning team effort. And they're actually like, asking for things and it didn't matter that like prior to us getting to Houston, I was working like crazy hours. Um, but then I got down there a week before the Super Bowl, which I was lucky enough to travel with the team down there. And that week was just like a, a dream. You're like, you're, you're partying well above your head of just things of like, <laughs> oh, I don't belong here. You're attending banquets. The teams are throwing. Uh, it's just, it was a, a dream. Uh, I keep saying that, but it truly was. It felt like I was living in a real life dream. And then, yeah, I mean, obviously the game wasn't exactly what I had hoped for, but it was, it was a great first half. I mean, I remember at halftime, uh, my buddy actually that I went to the game with gave an interview to ESPN Brazil about how we were going to like win the game, like 42, nothing or something. And obviously <laughs> that didn't exactly happen, uh, but no, it was, it was a great time. I mean, an experience I wouldn't trade even given the heartbreak that occurred at the end of it. I mean ultimately you can't control some of those things yeah, for sure so you've obviously left the falcons you've joined us here at true media bit of a self-serving question but what are you doing now on the football front with us so i mean high level uh the mirror of my old role so in my old role i was trying to help uh 
serve our organization directly in the lead analytics role. And now it's kind of working with the people that use tools like True Media. In my old role, I use True Media to impact the team of here are other ways that you can impact it, whether it's an analytics director, whether it's coaches, whether it's scouts of here's the ways that you're already probably doing things maybe outside of True Media. And here's how you can do them in True Media more effectively. And here's maybe you're right. building a report in Excel and now you can build it in True Media and watch film on it. Um, so just introducing the concepts that maybe, as I mentioned, it's a busy year, right? So as I was in Atlanta, I maybe knew 10% of True Media that I know now and I thought I knew it well. So <laughs> just spending the time learning those things and then delivering that information back to like, hey, have you seen this feature? Have you seen that feature? And then also working on those same things with our college football clients. Yeah. Where is college football at analytics wise? We've also been talking about the NFL and college is you know, not quite that high, but probably not too far behind. Broadly speaking, where is college football from an analytics standpoint? I'd say in some ways, in some ways further ahead than the NFL. And the reason I say that is as I've learned through kind of starting this role, they have a lot more help than I, than you would expect that, as I mentioned, those student organizations that are popping up, they're just as talented, if not more talented than your average NFL analytics employee. They just haven't been given the opportunity to do that. And there's 12 of them or 20 of them that just want to do that with their time. So they've got additional resources. So there's that that like is just bigger than you don't have to have budget for that because they're just doing it for free. And then second to that, uh, a lot of those coaches ultimately want to get to the NFL. So they're going to be more open to what what edges can I have to differentiate me and like just either get a better college job or go on to the next level. And so they embrace things like fourth down decision making a lot more openly than your 30 year vet NFL head coach who's had a myriad of experience of success without having any of that information. One other question, just to compare uh, kind of public models to what teams generally are using. You know, fourth down models, pass blocking models, all these things have kind of blown up in the last decade or so. Uh, media, Twitter, articles, et cetera. Are these tools, you know, obviously the inputs and modeling is slightly differently, but are these tools generally similar or how similar are they to what teams are developing and using themselves? They're not necessarily as similar as they should be. Um, in some ways, like you'd think like, okay, yeah, there's known inputs of what you should be using to kind of make those decisions. So they should all generally be the same, whether a team's producing it or whether it's produced in the public sphere. Um, but I've kind of reviewed different tools internally that we use championship analytics at one point in my Atlanta career. And then there's other tools that I would review where I'm not going to speak poorly on a specific tool, but other ones out there, where I'm like, oh man, these charts are so different than those charts, but ultimately the inputs are, should be similar. Why is that? And so that I could honestly see why sometimes coaches do have a hard time trusting those things. Um, so yeah, they're, they're kind of, they're probably similar where maybe some public models are similar to some internal models and then other different public models are also similar to other different internal models. It all depends on how aggressive you want to be is really what it comes down to. All right, let's wrap things up with our playing favorite segment. Uh, we get to know you a little bit better. First, what is your favorite number and why? So two is my favorite number. Um, it was my soccer number growing up, so that's definitely like the obvious reason why. Um, but in general, I'm like very much I like balance. Like I like even numbers. I like <laughs> just kind of like the yin and yang. And so, yes, two is my favorite number. Who's your favorite athlete as a kid? 
Allen Iverson was my favorite athlete as a kid. Growing up in Philadelphia, I would imitate him in my driveway and when I was working on my basketball. How was your crossover? Uh, not nearly as good as his. But... <laughs> you have a favorite uh, Philly sports memory from growing up or whenever just as a Philly guy? Yeah, so ironically enough, the only Super Bowl that they won was during my uh, Falcons career, and I'm I'm still not an Eagles fan currently today. I'm not even necessarily an NFL team fan. It's like once you work for a team, you kind of lose that. My favorite moment definitely, though, is Villanova. As I mentioned, I went to school there. Um, Their 2016 championship would be my favorite memory. I was still in school at that point in time. My dad... uh, was a Villanova grad. I got to share that memory with him, and nice. that's truly definitely my favorite. Chris Jenkins, good work. Uh, favorite memory? We talked about your Super Bowl run, but favorite or well, one thing that really stands out to you from that couple weeks experience? The pregame tailgate. So <laughs> the we got free tickets to it, two of them, um, as like team employees. The sticker price was some four figure sum. I'll let you figure out what it was. <laughs> um, so I felt blessed from that to start and then Ludacris and TI performed. There was great food. It was like, Oh my gosh, I'm never going to get to experience something like this again, probably. And then, I mean, to this point I haven't, but yeah, right, it was great. Right. And that almost might answer this question too, but favorite, how did I get here moment where you kind of just can take a step back and absorb how cool it is that this career you've had has gotten you to a certain point. Favorite, how did I get here moment? It was definitely that for the first several years of my career. Cause I mean, it truly was. Uh, I. It's only not that because during the experience, I remember having a conversation with my mother actually telling her, I need to soak this in because I don't know if I'll ever have that again. So I was yeah. more like cognizant of that situation than I'd even say I probably expected to be. My favorite, though, was honestly being involved in trading Julio Jones. So uh-huh. like at that point, I had reached a point where our organization bought into, hey, if we're going to make a big decision like that, we need analytics to like kind of vet the decision. Not that right. I was saying, hey, we should or shouldn't. It's just right. it's a sanity check. Almost. Well, objectively, can you quantify what he's worth in a trade? Can mm-hmm. you show historical trades at stars at this age? Those types of things to make sure that should we be moving on? Should we not be moving on? And when I took a step back, like from an hour conversation I had with some decision makers, I'm like, I'm a, I'm a little torn, right? Because like right. we're about to potentially trade a star, but this is pretty cool. <laughs> so yeah. that would be my how, how did I get here moment. All right. Good story to end with. John Terramina, True Media Director of Football Strategy, former Falcons Director of Football Data and Analytics. Thank you for joining us on Expected Value. Back in the True Media studios, I'm Paul Carr. Thanks again to John Teramina for joining us on the show. You can follow him on Twitter at TheRealPapaJohn, TheRealPapaJohn. See his working directly on our own Twitter feed at True Media Sports. We'll have a few links in our show notes as well. I'm joined now by producer Sergio De La Estrella, who very graciously took some time from rooting for the Heat and the Panthers to be a part of the show. Thank you for that, Sergio. You know, it's it's a very difficult thing to do when you have to take time out of the being the center of the sports world to <laughs> come in and do your actual job. It's it's tough, I know, but it's a sacrifice that I'm willing to make, Paul. So, so glad to be here. Very noble. Very much appreciate that. Thank you so much for your work on this, especially in this busy time for you. Uh, what, what did you take away from the conversation with John? 
Uh, I loved it. I mean, we know John and he's been with us and, and uh, he's doing a great job as director of football strategy for us. And, you know, I always knew some of, you know, what he did, but it was nice to be able to like sit down and listen to you really just go through everything and, and ask him specifically, like, how did you get there? What did you do in this role? What was your experience with this situation? And I think the one that stuck out the most to me was just how rare it is for people to be in an NFL draft war room. I mean, I make a habit to watch um, Draft Day, the Kevin Costner movie, which <laughs> is just not a realistic movie at all. But I just love still entertaining that movie. It is every draft day, like every round one of the draft, I'll throw it on while I work or whatever. And I'm like, ah, yes, Kevin Costner trades three first rounders or whatever. It I, have is. A, I have a quick story on that. So there was actually an ESPN screening for that movie before it came out, out in Connecticut. I was there. And so it was a whole theater full of ESPN people. And we both, like you said, enjoyed the movie and appreciated it for what it was. And everyone's kind of like, I don't really know about that trade, if that would actually happen, you know, especially the researchers, like I was you know, putting on a research hat and being nitpicky about things like, I don't know about that, but we all also still had a lot of fun and enjoyed the movie. Of course. Like, I don't know who's trading four first round picks right. or whatever, over breakfast. For something or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Some, some crazy. And I think the most unrealistic part of that movie is, uh, I think, is that Jennifer Aniston? Jennifer Gardner. Jennifer Gardner, sorry, I just the Jennifers and the Chris's just blend together. But if Jennifer Gardner tells me she's pregnant, I'm dropping everything and I'm saying <laughs> I won. That's it. Like I win. Changes but things. Anyway, exactly. I think the coolest thing about the conversation with John about the war room section was I think there's a misconception as to how much authority that right, right. the analytics department have in terms of drafting and, and roster decisions. And I think also what he said about the Julio Jones situation also kind of ties into their expertise is sought after, but they are advisors, right? And if we're going to finish the analogy of draft day, you see Kevin Costner going to different people and asking for their opinion. But ultimately, the only person that makes a decision is the general manager and probably, you know, the guys on his immediate circle um, in that section. So I just thought that it was great to hear from someone in the war room that, hey, look, I have a role in here, but I'm not making a decision. So Anybody who's like, oh, that third round pick was made by the analytics department. Not true. But just <laughs> glad that we could get that out there from someone in the actual room. So that was, to me, one of the coolest things about him, um, the conversation. with Yeah, him. it reminds me of kind of what a researcher does on TV in that I'm obviously not on TV for the most part. Uh, and the person who's ultimately making the decision about what's on is either the person on air, the talent or the producer. But generally, I mean, if the talent doesn't say it or whatever, it's not getting on air. I can give them all the information I want. I can pitch all these ideas, but ultimately it's their call. You know, they have to make the decision. They may have, they may ask for things, you know, Hey, what about this? What about that? When's the last time this happened? That all goes into it. But ultimately, you know, that person at the top, the GM, the head coach, however, the organization is kind of structured, they have to make the call and we're all just contributing, whether it's an analyst or researcher, uh, whatever it is in there. Um, one thing I like that he said, I like that he described analytics as an extension of video because Again, we're getting more and more this way in every sport, but we'll just say again, the numbers and the scouts just work so well together and should work so well together that uh, like what true media, our product does, it saves you time. You know, you don't have to watch every snap the guy played in order to see the 10 pass deflections, interceptions, contested throws, whatever that he made when we can get you there faster. So it's just, it is an extension of videos and as much as there have been presented historically kind of an opposite thing, scouting versus numbers. The real everyone's all trying to get to the same goal. And I'm sure I've said this before, 
but the the best teams outlets whatever it is are when you can pull those people all together into one unified process and it's it's harder than it's easy to say that it's a little harder in practice when people have been doing things uh different ways for a long time but ultimately that's what we're all trying to do yeah i wouldn't say it's easy to say that just because you know i think that's the thesis of expected value (laughs) maybe we put put together a lot of work on this podcast that's right but I, i also think that it goes to similar to what your point was i think it it lends itself to what john said at the beginning which was the misconception as to what the analytics department does like before we had this, you know, analytics revolution, quote unquote, um, you know, he was saying people would sit down, watch the film tag when the player that they wanted to scout was on the screen. And it was just taking up hours and hours and hours of time and something that you and I, for example, when we launched our college baseball product, as we, you know, record this in the college baseball, um, college world series, college baseball tournament has just started. Um, you know, one of the things that was the selling point of our products to, you know, something 40 something of the 64 teams are our clients right now in the tournament is, hey, this is just going to save you a lot of time and you don't have to watch each individual thing. And and when people understand that and those people who are a bit more analytics hesitant is the phrase I want to use, um, might, might have to coin that and trademark yeah. that one. I like that. I want t-shirts. The, ana- the analytics hesitant people. I think once we can, if we can get that into, you know, their viewpoint of this is just trying to make a lot of things that would take a lot of time just quicker and easier so you can focus on other things that are maybe a bit more important to you, then I think we can get to a middle ground of between the quote unquote numbers people and the quote unquote football or baseball or soccer or basketball people, whatever. Yeah. And it's wild. I mean, we say this a lot, but it's wild how he was talking about when he was in college, which was, you know, 10 years ago or so sports analytics major didn't exist. You know, Moneyball had just come out the movie, not the book. Um, so it's it just how much things change in a decade is always interesting to see. So he had a good uh, just ex- explanation of how that changed from an internal standpoint over the course. What of- is it with the what is it with the like sports and data ad- adjacent movies and hiring just like absurdly attractive people like like Brad Pitt playing <laughs> Billy Bean, Jennifer Gardner's in a movie working the cap for an NFL team like this. It's just unfair. Well, it's they're, just they're unfair. Not, they're not going to go see a movie with me. If, if no, exactly. Someone like that. So I'd say it's, it's Ex- wise marketing, I believe. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Listen, the only marketing that I need for this weekend is uh, the center of the South Florida world. That's right. We'll continue to be um, the center of the sports world, I should say. We'll continue to be in South Florida. Go. So as long All as right. everyone remembers that analytical point, we'll be good. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Sergio. Good luck to the Miami teams uh, in the finals. And thanks again to John Terramina for talking to us here on the show. We have a lot more football guests in the archives, including PFF data scientist Amelia Probst, lots of different big data bowl winners from the past several years, and former NFL GM Mike Tannenbaum. While you're there, please subscribe, rate, review the show. We always appreciate it. It helps us grow. And we also appreciate any sharing on social media or good old-fashioned word of mouth. On behalf of producer Sergio De La Esperia and all of us here at True Media, I'm Paul Carr. Thank you for listening to Expected Value, the podcast that goes inside the sports analytics world.